Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Is it possible that there are no coincidences? People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. You must unlearn what you have learned. Welcome, everyone, to Cast Em Off Radio Fringe Files. I am your host, Brandon Schwinn, and this is episode number nine. Yeah, we're cranking these out finally. Um, we've really decided to go all in on the Fringe Files show here on the Fringe Radio Network. Uh, and, and I've just been blessed to have the opportunity to bring on so many amazing guests. And tonight's show is, is, is definitely one of the best so far. Uh, I'm really excited about it. Before we get to that, just want to remind you guys to go to YouTube, get subscribed to our YouTube channel because all of these are on video. If you're hearing my voice right now, you could actually be watching me on YouTube. And I know that's scary for a lot of you because I wouldn't want to watch me either. But if you do, for some reason, you can go to YouTube, find the Cast Em Off Ministries YouTube channel, and then hit subscribe. Um, it, it helps us out. The more subscribers, the better. Uh, guys, also share on social media. If, if you see posts on social media that we're doing the shows or anything like that, please just hit the share button. It takes a second and it gets the, gets the name out there. It gets the show out there. And the more people that see it, the more people that, that hear the truth. And that's, that's what we want. That's the goal. Um, uh, if you could please rate and review, that is huge. If you guys would take the time to rate and review on iTunes or Spreaker or, or Stitcher or wherever you hear, uh, the program, please take the time, just do a, a, a rating and review and that helps us tremendously. Uh, and then tell some friends if, if you don't mind, uh, if you like a show, if you hear a show and you enjoy it, tell a friend about it. Let them know that, hey, you got to check this out. This show was great. What they talked about was outstanding, and maybe you're going to learn something. Because here on the Fringe Files, well, this is different <clears throat> from regular Cast Em Off Radio because our goal is to, it's to open people's eyes. It's to bring people uh, the truth from out here on the fringes. Now, you guys know we're very, very careful, and I'm very, very picky about who I bring on the program. I'm not just going to bring anybody on uh, to have a sensational story or, or to get... Ratings, reviews, and 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 views. It's just not going to happen for me. It's it's about giving you the truth and bringing on quality guests who actually know what they're talking about and haven't just spent a day on YouTube. And so um, we we go out, we find those who have done the research, we bring them on the program, and we talk to them. And and uh, they're the guests, they're the experts. That's why we have them on. I'm not the expert, so my job is to ask the questions. And so that's that's what we're asking you guys to do is tell a friend, let them know about the show, so that they can come and and hear what's going on too. Uh, if you want to partner with us, if you want to partner with Cast Em Off Ministries, if it has helped you in some reason or some way, 
and you just feel like you want to give back, you can go to castemoffradio.com and there is a donut donut. There's a donut button. There's a I wish I had a donut button. There's a donate button on the top upper left hand corner. You can use that there. That's all I'm gonna say about it. Um and that's it for the intro, guys. It's short, sweet, and to the point. That's how we're doing it from now on. So, okay, tonight is a huge show. I'm very excited. Uh, this is a guy who I have looked up to for many years. Um, and I'm just excited to have him on the program. Uh, my guest tonight is a director. He's a producer. He's a researcher. And he's a speaker. He is a director and co-producer of the Watchers series that is hosted by L.A. Marzuli, the director, producer, and host of the documentary film Torah Codes End to Darkness, and the founder of Pinlight Productions. You probably already know who I'm talking about. You can find all of his production or all of his projects at pinlight.com and on the Pinlight YouTube channel. Richard Shaw, welcome to the program, sir. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, Brandon. Thanks for the big build-up here. I hope I live up to it. I probably could have gone on a lot longer, but because you've been, you know, you guys have been doing this for a while. Uh, everything you do is amazing. I've loved the Watcher series was a mind blower for me. We talked about this a little bit before the program, but uh, it was like a slap in the face to wake me up out of the whole ancient alien slumber that I was in, you know. Um, and so I'm just thrilled to have you on here. And so, you know, kind of tonight, what I want to do is, you know, I know you've probably done a lot of programs talking about um, Torah Codes, Into Darkness, and the Watcher series, and I want to talk about all that tonight. But but what I really want to do is is find out more about you. Um, could you kind of give us a background on how – did you always want to be in video production and and do the kind of things you're doing now, or how did this happen? <laughs> Well, I'm probably not nearly as interesting as the stuff we're doing. <laughs> but it, anyway, I, I I got interested in in music as a little kid and studied classical pipe organ, and always liked stuff that had lots of buttons and switches. <laughs> <laughs> so that led me into uh, doing audio engineering and you know helping to build our own consoles and and record and got into multi-track recording and on location recording in, in LA and other places. And, uh, I had this friend at uh, Cal state U in long beach that would let me use his really expensive Neumann microphones and go out and record stuff. So it nice. was, it was really, really fun. And my music background and all of that was helpful. And, and then I met this guy, uh, named Bruce Broughton who, was uh, tremendously inspiring, an incredibly talented composer. At the time, he was in charge of music for a CBS Studio Center. And this was a long time ago. It shows kind of my age. I mean, this was like I was just a kid, and this was like in the late 70s. And he was writing music for television shows. I mean, at that time, it was like Hawaii Five-0 and, and other shows like that. And he came... Uh, at the time, I was uh, uh, an accompanist at our at our church on pipe organ, and which I had a lot of fun doing. And I was writing original music for the church, and you know this was like semi classical, really different stuff that I was trying to push the envelope a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so Bruce came and and did. Because of we had a music director by the name of John Hallett, who was a, a dear friend and has long since passed away, but he brought Bruce in to write a Christmas medley, and I couldn't believe I was getting to play in this 
orchestral thing because this is the guy that writes big scores for television shows. Yeah. And it just, it was awesome to hear something of this caliber in church. It blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) I mean, it was like we were, we were doing music like you'd hear on a network television show or a movie or something. And, but we were doing it in church for Christmas show. Hmm. And, I guess, so I got to know Bruce because of that. I said, man, I'd sure like to come to one of your sessions sometime and just see what you do. And he goes, oh, okay. Well, you know, people in, in Los Angeles always say they're going to do stuff and rarely do anything. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's the Hollywood shuffle. Yeah. You know, we're, we know all about that. But Bruce was a great guy. And so I got this call from him. He said, I'm, I'm uh, scoring a, a 5-0 show on Thursday if you want to come over. And so I, I drive in, you know, I'm, he gives me a, 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 a pass to park on the lot, which is really kind of special. Yeah. Anybody that's been out here would know that. And uh, I started going to his scoring sessions and it was, it was just, it made, it made the university's music courses look like something out of an elementary school. It was like, what am I doing going to school? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Here's the real deal. Yeah. Here's and so I would I was you know just a kid and I'd sit on the floor, like while they're recording huh. next to these musicians, watching them play with headphones on. So is it like this, a big orchestra? What does this sound like up close? What are they looking at? How are they doing all this synchronization? You know, so they were you know, running on click tracks that have you know a big screen with a streamer going by, and it was all perfectly synced. And these guys were just in insanely good musicians they were just i can't tell you they were like instant sight readers and and these were guys like claire fisher and Artie kane and people that you would read about on you know in those days that were like writing music for their own shows and morton stevens was like uh one of the writers and conductors at the time wrote the 5-0 show theme so one day Bruce called me up and said, oh, we're recutting the theme today. So according back in those days, when they renew their contract every year, they had to recut the show's theme song fresh. Hmm. So I got to sit in and hear the big 5-0 theme cut in real time with the actual mu- musicians. And I just could hardly stand it. I mean, it was just like, I can't believe I'm I'm pinching myself. Is this really <laughs> happening? Because that that song was like famous, people oh, still yeah. play it all the time, you know. And it's like, and here I'm there as they're recording it, and I thought I got to do this, you know. This is just, you know. So I ended up getting a job in television as an audio music kind of guy for a while, and you know, because I felt like we needed to be getting out some kind of a message. In those days, and and don't think me weird for this, because I I really thought this through. In those days, I was living in uh, Long Beach, California, where I'd grown up. And a lot of the the, the studios were doing things out there, but trying to get a job at a studio and joining the union and all of that was, was horrendously difficult. Now, you could go in as an intern, but... but um, I wanted to actually be working because I already knew how to do a lot of this stuff. I'm, I was, you know, it, it, I, I had actually done stuff on my own. I'd been recording. I knew about tape machines. 
I knew about sync and all of those things in those days. And, you know, so I wanted to actually go do this. So I, I ended up getting a job, uh, accepted at a job at, at the PTL television network in Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> now they flew me in for an interview. I'm here. I am just a kid. And I'm, uh, they put me on a jet and flew me in, and the chauffeur picked me up at the airport. And they drive me into this place that looked star-studded. I mean, no one knows this unless you've followed the whole Jim Baker saga. It, it wasn't. It didn't start out as weird as it ended. It started out as almost a magical adventure. They had re redone this this gigantic building that looked like a church, and they put. A, a mammoth studio, you know, just like you'd see out here in L.A. somewhere, better in some respects. Hmm. And state-of-the-art equipment uh, in those days. And uh, the guy that was hiring me, was his name was Ralph Sitton, and we became really good friends. I, I love Ralph. And he said, we're going to order a, a Neve 5305 console. Well, I didn't know what a Neve console was in those days. You know, now I do, but I didn't know that back then. Found out it's one of the best consoles in the world. In fact, we had ordered one of the largest ones they'd ever built for broadcast. And so my job that first year was to help install this thing and wire it and get it running and mix the show. So I was the head mixer for the PTL club for about a year and a half, along with several other guys, too. I wasn't the only one doing it, but I had the responsibility of doing it. And it was like a pressure cooker because we were live coast to coast for an hour and a half every day. So you're the guy who's like, you know, cut to camera two, cut to camera three, put up the overlays, all this kind of stuff. You're no, that's video. I was I was mixing the show sound. So you're doing just the sound side of of this at this point, which was 56 inputs. Oh, my gosh. Live. You (laughs) couldn't make a mistake. So everything I've done since then has seemed really simple. I bet. Yeah. Um, and there were other guys that were, were really good. There was uh, another guy named Mark Bogart. There was um, uh, John, Don Kendrick. Uh, and then there, and then we had uh, assistant guys who were set up people on the floor and we had cameras running out there. So the, the neat thing about PTL is that I didn't have to join a union and I could learn about anything that interested me. Hmm. Oh, we've got two-inch quad tape machines. Nobody knows what that is today. But back then, a tape machine was a single deck cost $120,000. Oh, wow. And there were like, you know, several of those at PTL. And then the cameras, the lenses, there were Schneider lenses. They were like twenty grand a pop. The cameras, you know, the whole setup was about 90000 per camera. And we had those. We had one of the, the the few Chapman electric cranes available. And all of these things were like big-time studio equipment. I mean, this wasn't like – this is why now the way we do television and the way we do I mean, even shows like, like we're doing now mm-hmm. on a shoestring, uh, I, I've, never, I've never done things as cheaply – and with on lower budgets than I have the past five years. Yeah. And it seems to be getting worse. And so when I look at programs that people say are good, I'm going, well, 
it's really not that good of a show because this should be happening. And I mean, I can look at it instantly and tell you, well, that's looks amateurish, but I mean, it's because I've had so much experience with this. I expect there to be a certain level of quality and you have to do the best you can when there's no money to, to work with no money. So fast forward to, uh, I mean, uh, let's see, I guess, uh, where's another big, milestone if anybody's interested in 1984 i became an editor for television broadcast magazine and they made me an editor for of audio and i had to write about broadcast sound now this is a long time ago this is in the mid 80s television still was limping into just being stereo in those days and there were lots of problems with equipment, and, and lots of people didn't know how to conquer the problems that were existing, like limiting and compression, and mm-hmm. all of these things were a big issue in those days. It's not so much now. Everything's digital. It's much easier, actually. But back then, you had to figure all this stuff out. And I wrote for about 15 years while doing other projects. We started a company in Atlanta with a friend of mine, David McBrayer. We started a company called Digital Solutions in 1993. And that was uh, because I had been given this this job. Uh, we had shifted magazines, and my friend Phil Kurz, who was the editor, said, what interests you? And I said, well, really, I think the one of some of the most interesting stuff that's happening in production is what's going on with the Apple Macintosh because there were so many things happening. I mean, they had Photoshop and they had, yeah. uh, they had a, a program that had just come out called Diva Video Shop. It was a, an editing program for video and you would drag clips into the timeline. I mean, this was new stuff. I mean, this was like, Oh yeah. Ni- 1990. No one knows that this was going on. In 1991, Apple came out with QuickTime. I remember, okay. Which, which is like, you know, everybody made fun of it. Oh, it's dancing postage stamps. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's about, because video was like, uh, you know, 120 pixels wide. And that was basically all the computers of, of that ilk of that day could handle. And I, I said, you know, someday this is going to be broadcast quality. And this is the way all video is going to be done. And everybody just laughed at me. Oh, it's never going to happen. <laughs> it's always going to be on tape machines you know, and about that time, I guess, you know, 90, 91, it was uh, one inch uh, was the, the video standard for most studios and television stations. And some people had uh, D2 that was a digital format. And then later, a couple of years later, we had something called uh, digital beta cam that came out and sound had gone through several different things like it was analog and then digital and then analog and digital together. And then memories went into consoles so you could reset them. Solid state logic did was pioneered that uh, Rupert Neves consoles could do that. And then there was some really some crazy innovations and stuff got really super expensive for a while. When things went to high def, things got really expensive. Yeah. Now everything's high def mm-hmm. and costs virtually nothing. <laughs> well, yeah, look at, I mean, look at this, look at it. I mean, I'm on a webcam, it's 1080p, and uh, it doesn't necessarily record that high, but 
I, I'm in my bedroom recording a program with you and you're in your, your house. And right. yeah, this isn't like a, a pro level production, but we live in the YouTube era where this yeah. is what people expect. And it is wild, isn't it? I mean, it's, but then you also get that, that whole other side of things where you get a whole lot of stuff that's really, really bad too with, with that because it's so cheap. So it's kind of a it's kind of a trade off. You you get cheap and you get bad at the same time, you know. Well, that's right, and and there's a lot of technical considerations that because most people haven't been at it so long as I have, they haven't had this background of seeing how it how it's come up yeah. from those beginnings, and not that that you need to know about all that stuff that you need to know how to adjust the heads on a two inch quad deck or something like that, but there were certain uh, things that, that have helped me in production by having the knowledge of television for so long. I can and, imagine, yeah. And it, it's like th- things have to look a certain way, and you gradually develop an eye for it. And, you know, I kind of started from the technical and music side and then got into to directing and editing. And when I guess what got me really excited was when – I was a beta test site for Avid Technology, and they would send me equipment for editing, for video editing. And I'm doing it at, at the house, and I'm going, I'm actually putting this whole show together without a team of people to help. Now, normally, and the YouTubers that are just, you know, millennials that are doing this have never experienced the, the pain of having to edit in a tape environment. It's a totally different animal. That's horrible. Yeah, I did it for like a day. We had a, uh, what is that, a, like a, oh, a technology class in high school. This would have been, sure. I think, late 90s, you know, mid to late 90s. And they had just come up, I can't remember the name of the machine, but it was fairly new where you could, you'd put the two decks <laughs> in and you could, you know, the two tapes in and you could crossfade and do all this stuff it was it could hook into a computer but even that machine it was a nightmare it was horrible i did it for a day and decided i would never do it again it was well yeah i mean that i you know we would do one inch editing and i I, i'd work with a, a guy who was a good editor and i was doing sound or i was producing a project of my own and it was like okay we have to do a dissolve that's three tapes it's a oh, tape man. with A source, B source, and then a, a master. And all those all those machines would have to be time code synchronized to roll together. It would go through a switcher, and then the editing system would GPI trigger a dissolve on a switcher, and there you had your dissolve. Now, say you wanted to go, you've, you've done this through a show, you're 43 minutes into an hour-long show, and uh-huh. you realize, oh, I need to insert a segment that's 12 point, you know, eight seconds long that has to go in the middle of the show. Then you had to go back in your edit decision list and re-edit the show from that point to the end uh. again. If you did any kind of effects, you had to recreate all those. I mean, it was just a, a frigging nightmare. Yeah. And you're looking at a screen with just, you know, a green screen with flickering numbers on it. That's all you have. And huh. lots of monitors overhead and buttons and stuff that lights up. I mean, when I look at Star Wars, the original Star Wars, when they were blowing up the Death Star, that's a Grass Valley switcher <laughs> for doing that. That there, And I always would kind of chuckle when they would show that shot. But, I mean, that, that was a reality. Now, 
with nonlinear editing, I realized I was able to basically sit at home, didn't need a tape operator, didn't need a Chiron operator, didn't need an editor, didn't need a sound guy. I was sitting at a computer basically doing the whole thing. Yeah. All of a sudden, that was incredibly liberating. <laughs> and <laughs> a lot of people lost their I jobs. About it. It's normally done. <laughs> yeah. It's like, now I'm doing that. So I became a beta test site for various uh, nonlinear companies. And I knew the guys that developed Adobe Premiere and Avid. And all of us were friends in those days. That's been a long time ago. And so we would share ideas and concept and how to make it more intuitive when someone's editing three in the morning, you don't want to be dragging and dropping something. You want to just hit a button. You know, it's just when your eyes are crossing, you want to make it easy. And the guys that developed uh, Adobe Premiere, all these people who are using it on YouTube uh, left Adobe and, and started their own thing called final cut. And Mm. in those days it was owned by a different company than, than Apple. And Apple bought bought their software and continued to develop it to where today it's it's the powerful program that it is. Yeah. So I mean that's all how all this stuff happens. That's what I use when I edit watchers. So then fast forward a few more years, we've moved back to Hollywood. We were all homesick, or at least I was. I wanted to come back to my homeland where I could work with creative people and not everybody out here is left-wing <laughs> crazy. <laughs> uh, it's just not true. There's a lot of old Hollywood types that are really good friends of mine who are insanely good at what they do. And I haven't found people like that in the other towns that I that we lived in. Yeah. Not quite the same, to the same level. I mean, like, for example, I went to lunch yesterday with with my friend Bob Williams, who has worked in special effects since the early 80s, uh, developed the uh, first Terminator robot. Oh, cool. And made, built the arm and the, the head, and, you know, basically the head was plastic, and they flash chrome-plated it. Huh. And so then when they crush it in the in the at the end of the, of the film, in the first Terminator picture, I mean, it was basically a, just piles of junk that they... And he made the little red LED, you know, go out... Huh. When it was killed, I mean, this is Bob's work. He was like the uh, the special effects technician they call him. Oh, wow. but he's really brilliant. He was a physics major, so Bob's the type of guy that would that that I brought to Israel Israel with me when I'm exploring something, uh, and he's like my no BS guy. Yeah. <laughs> I say, Bob, tell me what you think this really is, <laughs> because he's been all over the world. I mean, when uh, last time we went to Israel together, he had just gotten off a big movie called The Great Wall with Matt Damon and shot it in China and was gone for eight months. And he typically Bob is still like a little kid. He goes, Rick, you're going to see this effect. And he shows me on his phone. He's like punching up buttons and he's playing this this scene where they're throwing huge fireballs, you know, like for miles with this machine they'd built to make the movie. And then the other day he was working on some kind of really high end commercial and they had to blow up this office building on the inside, an interior explosion, which are really interesting, you know. Mm -hmm. And I know pretty much how he does it, but not the details. I mean, he 
it looks it looked totally real. I mean, just like boom, and this window blows out and glass goes flying and stuff oh. shakes. I and mean, it was just like awesome. So that's what Bob does. He's just he's a frigging amazing, brilliant special effects guy and uh we're always trying to do something trying to pull out another show and and work on that so there's that and then there's my co-producer that worked with me on uh torah codes into darkness which is terry tilton now terry is married to jimmy stewart not the actor but the guitarist and and jimmy uh, about five years ago had a, a massive stroke and and very cruelly paralyzed his left arm, his finger arm. And he was like a major writer for Guitar Player magazine. He'd played on at least a thousand albums. He consulted for Michael Jackson. Uh, I mean, he's a major Hollywood guy. And so Terry's job for years out here was to take care of major music stars and performers. And... When she found out what I was doing with the Torah codes or trying to do at the time, this is we've known each other. I I guess I've known Terry since 2007, I guess it was. Mm -hmm. I met her in Hollywood. She latched on to me and has never let go. We've become really good friends with their family and ours. And so I, I later on find out about her that she's Jewish. She thought the Torah code concept was incredible. And so I took her to Israel with me to help manage the production. She did a, a fantastic job. And uh, if we get enough money to do the second film, I'll take her again. Hmm. But, uh, it, I mean, another old Hollywood contact, and Terry treats me like a rock star. <laughs> she really does. I mean, she can't help herself. And she she's, uh, she's like my pit bull if someone does us wrong. I don't even want to know what she's saying. <laughs> I just say, Terry, I need a little help with this. And I send her an email and she goes, I'll take care of it. And that's that's the last thing I have to do. He's just awesome. And there's other people like Bruce Broughton, like I mentioned earlier, that was so helpful to me when I was just growing up. And and uh, Bill Goldstein, who wrote the music for fame, is is an incredible musician and, and improviser insanely great pianist is a good friend of mine so there's people out here that i would have never met in north carolina or in georgia and i value these associations well in when the economy fell apart in 2009 the next year we were really having trouble because of it and a lot of businesses out here went out of business it was not only that that the economy went bad but it was also that there was a revolution in technologies. Mm. The businesses out here were shifting from film to digital. Yeah. And some 60 film editing companies that edited physical film went out of business. I mean, it was like overnight. Mm. These people left. Uh, iTunes basically destroyed the music industry. And people that had they were Grammy winners and everything else that, that worked for Warner brothers and friends of ours like that. You know, entire offices were let go. Hmm. I mean, so these people end up being massage therapists and I mean, it was just, it was like shocking. So I realized, okay, how are we going to survive this? Because we had also done a movie, uh, 
in 2003 called Beat the Drum. It's about this little uh, African kid whose parents die of AIDS. And we shot this on 35 millimeter in South Africa and won 30 international awards on this movie. And MGM International picked it up, had it for eight months, and then promptly went bankrupt. So we were in we were in financial trouble over all of these things. I mean, it was a really, really hard time when you're when you do all this work and then you don't get paid. It's it's a disaster. And do you lose all the rights to it at that point? Since they, I mean, how does that work? No, they were our international distributor, but it was oh, okay. It was a, a really it was a sizable contract. And then we also had another company doing domestic uh, called Genius Products. And Genius Products was was sold to Vivendi. Genius was a subsidiary of the Weinstein Group. And they were doing uh, uh, domestic distribution. Mm -hmm. And I would call the lady that I was working on to help her with materials that she needed to promote the film. And then one day she disappeared. She said, I I don't think I'm going to be working here much longer. She was really a great lady. And wanted to put it out on Blu-ray in a year. And I was, you know, helping with that. I mean, when you do something at that level, when you're working with 35 millimeter and it's film and you're trying to do these kind of releases, it's expensive and takes I a long imagine. time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, you know, I was getting back then uh, the mastering was on D5, which was a professional uh, tape master that that foreign countries would also take like Germany wanted that format and other countries. So we, we released the film on, on digital HD and, and then all the people that I had been working with were laid off. Mm. So all of a sudden we had this really great award-winning film out there and no distribution, no way to get it out there. No. And so I realized well, I can't do this again. I can't trust the studios. This was the fourth studio to fail on two different jobs that I'd done out here. And when you go through four studios, do uh, you have to realize, well, things are changing. Mm-hmm. And the studios seemed to be, at the time, completely inept when it came to social media or using streaming or anything like that. Now, they've come around since then, but there's been other companies that have sprung up, like Netflix. Oh, yeah, they're killing it right now. Yeah, Netflix and Vimeo. Amazon. Yeah, Amazon Video and, of course, YouTube. YouTube uh, tends to worry me a bit, the directions they're going, Mm -hmm. getting into censorship, things like that. Yeah. Um, political censorship, but all of these things were changing. And then out of the blue, I, I had met L.A. Marzulli in 2007, and and I met him. If I'm going too long, just shut no, me this up. Is, no, you're actually us. answering all the questions I was going to ask you, so just keep on trucking, man. You're doing a good job. No, I don't know if this is interesting to yeah, anybody. This is, this is kind of – to me, thought. this is extremely fascinating. I mean, like I said, they can go and they can hear – you know, uh, all the other things on all the other shows, but you're not going to get this anywhere else. I, I want to hear the story behind the story. I've always been interested in that. How did, how did you, you know, how did you get to where you, where you are now? How, the I'm a behind the music guy. You know, I used to watch that on VH1 all the time. You know, how did these bands get there? How did this happen? What's the story behind the story? So to me, this yeah. is extremely fascinating. I, I wanted to know how you and LA, 
got together. And I'm sure you, this is all going to lead into how you met um, the rabbis for the project. So yeah, just keep on going until we get to that point, and we'll go from there. I'm 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 just kicking back and enjoying the <laughs> the story. So I love a okay. good. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't want to bore anybody with this. If no, too, you know, it goes on too long. Just say, hey, that's enough. We want to hear something else. We've now. gotten a lot of feedback um, from people who enjoy hearing. Uh, hearing about the behind the scenes because they don't, nobody asks those questions, I, I guess. So uh, I think it's pretty interesting for people. Well, I've had a friend that I've known for decades. In fact, I met him at PTL and he had been doing work in Europe and his name was Lee Cantillon. And the guy, when I met him, he came in with his brother, Paul. And my job then, this was in 1978. Paul was going to do a piano thing, some kind of a television uh, performance. So uh, he'd, he'd go out there and they had like a nine foot white Baldwin piano there at the studio. And then I was putting Neumann mics in it and trying to make it sound like a big deal. I mean, this is this is what I'm saying. I mean, that was like the norm for us to use studio mics when we did big television broadcasts. And hmm. um, we would we did that. So I recorded Paul, he was brilliant, of course, and his brother Lee would came in to the control room and we hung out and and Lee was like instantly talking my language. It was like he understood what I'd been through in Los Angeles, you know, learning at CBS, how they actually do these things correctly and kind of how bored I was doing what I was doing at the time because I was running way under my potential. But nevertheless, I was getting it was like television boot camp. I was getting really good experience. And I, I immediately fell in love with Lee because he was like just he was a brilliant guy. I found out he could speak two, three languages. He was, you know, had lived in Europe for many years. He was a, a seasoned filmmaker himself. He, he knew about sound and appreciated it. Um, he had met a lot of famous people. He'd worked for the BBC for a while. I mean, this this guy had been around. And I thought, this is a guy. Have you ever thought, like, I really want to be friends with this person, and I don't want to seem uh, overly anxious yeah. to be his <laughs> friend. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because you can, you can push people away by uh, overdoing it. But inside, I knew that we had to get to know each other. Yeah. I just felt like it was it was one of those things that God introduces you to a special person mm -hmm. and you're supposed to get to know that person. Well, so Lee and I did become really good friends. We worked on many shows for France and Italy together while we were there. And then we both, you know, went our separate ways and came back and did a, a project in Switzerland in 1983 together. And then we did various other projects uh a freelance work that, in fact, we were hired that both of us were doing secular work at the time because Christian television had degraded into something I no longer wanted to be a part of. Yeah. I, I don't know how else to put it, but that I understand I totally. Was, yeah. Yeah. It was it had gotten totally kooky and weird. And, and I just thought, OK, that's it. I just want to do something on my own. But nevertheless, I had this desire. I felt like people needed to know who. uh they needed to know about God. They needed to ha have that in their lives or people are empty otherwise. Mm -hmm. And 
I thought, you know, it'd be kind of fun someday to do something for Billy Graham at that level because he always does like worldwide stuff. It's always major. And I was working at the time. This was just before we started our company in Atlanta. I was working for a little TV station there, Fox affiliate. And um, Lee calls me out of the blue and said, I got this job to do four music videos for Billy Graham that's going to go international. And I need an equipment package. Could you put one together for me? And I said, sure. Now, unbeknownst to Lee, he didn't know I had been praying about doing something like that. So I put that package together. And meanwhile, uh, my friend David and I were starting uh, digital solutions where we were selling Avid's and Media 100 editing systems in Atlanta. And we, I said, you know, really, if we're going to do this, we need a post-production company because we got to show people that these products actually work and that it's broadcastable. I mean, you have to understand what was going on in that time. You had to convince people that this equipment could do the job and I wasn't interested in selling stuff. I was interested in doing something. So uh, we discussed it, and I started my own company with David's help, and we called it Z-Post. And I had an Avid suite of my own, and all of a sudden, there I was with all of this equipment. And so Lee had finished shooting all of these, these uh, videos for the Graham organization and needed a post house. I said, well, I got one now. Yeah, I'm your man. And it was, you know, so he came and we edited that stuff together and it, it really went together well. And it went international, went all over the world and like, I don't know how many different languages. I mean, they, when they do stuff in those days that it was like 48 languages, it yeah. was amazing, you know, and there was big budgets attached to it. So you could really finish this thing off. Well, the next year we got a job to do a show called Starting Over, which was a one-hour special, which they awarded to Lee, and then Lee brought it to me, and the, and also uh, another guy was in, was doing some shooting in London, uh, and that was a guy named Phil Cook. You may have heard of him. He has a, a studio out here of his own, but uh, it was basically Lee and I and the executive producer Susan Sherian that put this show together and it caused huge waves. <laughs> it's all I can say. They got 1 million pieces of viewer mail because we made the show into something more modern. We didn't want to do a crusade show with just, you know, a talking head of Billy up there as good as he is. We wanted it to, to extend out to a broader audience and just, you know, let's just talk about the message here in an entertaining fashion, in a modern fashion. So that's what yeah. we tried to do. And we used all of the tricks on the in the Avid suite that was available to us in those days. And it was it was a big deal. And that was that was interesting. So a few years later, you know, we had uh, had done some other work and we'd, we'd done stuff for CNN. We did something with Jane Fonda. We did other work. So this is just to say that we were, we were a well-rounded company. We were not just doing Christian productions, but also secular stuff. And you've basically and, and, taken and, 
I mean, you've taken what what all these other people had to do. What it would take like what twenty, thirty guys to do, and now you're doing it yourself in house. I mean, you've revolutionized kind of the the business really at this point. Yeah. Well, we all, I also had a staff in those days. There was there was a lot more money in a production than there is today. Mm-hmm. I had a, an incredible animator by the name Forrest Brown who also moved to Hollywood who did our 3D work. I occasionally got to work with a, a great uh, graphics guy by the name of Joe Bird, who's just fantastic, who would come over and do stuff. Uh, I had a, uh, a production assistant named Steve. I, I had an office assistant named Wendy. We had basically a, a core group. We could put stuff together and, and hammer it out really great just you know, with, with three or four people. Now it's just me, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but the you know, like the budgets. Well, Pro Tools is so amazing. You can do it by yourself, or Final or Final Cut Pro and Pro Tools, and right. You know all this stuff. I don't have. I don't use Final Cut myself, but I got the opportunity to go to Skywatch and sit down and watch Joe and, and those guys do their thing, and I'm jealous. I'm watching point, click, drag, and it's lining everything up, and all the audio is syncing, and I'm going, oh my gosh, I need to get this. So yeah. it's just amazing what you can do nowadays with just a little bit of technology, a, a la- well, literally is. a laptop and, and a program, you know? And, and Final Cut is so much faster than Premiere. I mean, it's just like some of these other editing systems now to me seem really old-fashioned after working with the newest version of, of Final Cut. But anyway, uh, in in 2006, I, in, well, 2005, I started my own studio in Hollywood called Pinlight. And that's when I actually opened the doors. And, and it was on the second floor of this old building called the Max Senate Stage in Hollywood, which is where Charlie Chaplin used to rehearse. And I had hmm. a studio downstairs that I could take use of at a reasonable rate. But I had pretty much the entire second floor on one side of the building for Z-Post, which became Pinlight. And uh, my partner, David, didn't want to be in the business anymore because I wanted to be out here and he wanted to stay in Georgia. So we we parted a business company and I continued on the with Pinlight. Well, I finished the Beat the Drum film and all of the, the deliverables for that under the Pinlight banner, uh, even though it's not credited in the movie that way. That's really what happened. And then after that, uh, Lee had gotten this book. Lee was out here living in California, too, at the time, which was really ironic. And he had written this book called The Words. Now, The Words was basically... If you took all the words of Christ, of Yeshua, out of the New Testament and just put them in a book so you could flip through and just read it, that's what he had had created. Hmm. Well, meanwhile, uh, a friend of mine named Warren uh, brought this big, huge dude into my studio who was the name of Big Slice. Now, Big Slice was like a six-foot-four black refrigerator. I mean, this guy was like with a big smile and... I immediately loved this guy. I mean, he was like Big Slice was the guy that had built all the award-winning uh, cars for Snoop Dogg. Oh, okay. The two of them grew up together in my hometown of Long Beach, and then later moved to Watts. and And Slice's grandmother was in Watts, and he had all these stories for me, which I thought was really, really interesting. And so I said, I'd like to go 
film this. I said, I'd like you to take me to watch and show me where you live with your grandmother and all that. So he said, okay. And I didn't want to go into Watts by myself as a white. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No one would really understand what I was there for. So the next day, Big Slice drives up in front of my studio in the Snoop, uh, Snoop DeVille. This is a big Cadillac with uh, chinchilla fur seats and embroidering on the doors. It was Snoop's car and that Slice had designed for him, which was a huge, just it was a hoot to ride in that car. And yeah. so on the way to Watts, Slice is like on his his phone with he has one of those intercom deals, you know, and he was calling these kids to meet us at the parking lot, some rendezvous place. I'm going, oh, my gosh, what do I got myself into? <laughs> but Meanwhile, you're a filmmaker. Filmmakers, you you just do stuff. You don't worry about the consequences so much. Otherwise, you can't be a wuss. You have to go in and and venture out and try stuff. And yeah. so I found myself in this town with about 20 kids walking up to our car, all wearing white T-shirts. I later on found out why they do that. All excited to meet us. And they treated us both like gods because we we're getting out of this Snoop car. And I've got like a film camera and another camera and I'm shooting them and making a story of it. And they're all handing us their, their CDs. I said, what's this guys? And they said, Oh, this is my latest rap. This is my latest song. I mean, they wanted us to hear all their music and we had guys like leaning in the window, rapping to us, you know, sticking their head in the car and like, it was just amazing. So they thought you were like a music producer or something like you could get them signed. it dawned on me that all these kids wanted to get out of their situation and they bet, thought the way yeah. to do it was to become a rap star. Huh. And it was really eye-opening to me. Yeah. Because I I I didn't understand that was a, a life I'd never been exposed to and I wanted to learn about it. I wanted to understand what these kids were into if they knew Jesus, if they had any idea of what was going on and and they all live in a 10-block bubble, pretty much, I mean, mm-hmm. their whole lives. They're taught, when, since they're five, the only way to, to make any money is to sell weed. Their parents teach them that. Oh, man. And then they have, like, uh, these other guys. It's the Crips and the Bloods. And so you got, like, the, the Latinos on one side of Watts constantly warring with the black kids on the other side. And people get killed and shot there all the time. It's just... Yeah. Just the way it is. And if you're like 18 and haven't gone to jail yet, you're like kind of weird. So I did a little piece for Big Slice. And then I told Lee about this. I said, this was just profound. This, you know, what happened. And so he said, uh, could we get Big Slice to read the words book in the studio? And I said, yeah, maybe he might do that because I like Slice immediately. I just thought this guy's really cool. And uh, he agreed to do that, but then Warren, the guy who introduced me into Slice, said, well, the Bone Thugs would probably do a song for you uh, on the same topic. If And I said, you're kidding me, right? And he goes, no, they'd probably do it, want to do it. And they're doing a concert with DMX uh, this weekend in Reno. So I find myself renting a van, and we all hop in it, and we drive to to Reno with all of our gear. We're jumping around on stage with Bone Thugs and Harmony filming the <laughs> concert. Concert. Now this is weird. We have a bunch of white guys on stage with a black rapping group that famous. Yeah. Bone Thugs and Harmony 
have sold like I don't know some 35 million albums. They were like in 2007 got the AMA award of America's favorite uh, rap band, and they are still, in my estimation, one of the very best that's ever ever come out of you know Cleveland. I mean, those guys are insanely talented, They're brilliant musicians. So it's it's also Lazy's birthday. Everybody has like a bone name. There's Lazy Bone and Busy Bone and, you know, Flesh and Bone. Yeah. Wish Bone. They all have bone. names like Bones, okay, <laughs> if you know anything about the group. And the, the interesting thing about them was that the, the tune that they won the Grammy on was called The Crossroads. And The Crossroads was about their friend Eze, who had gotten them into the business, who had died of AIDS and – they made this piece of all their friends getting murdered or killed or dying of sickness and going to heaven. And when I saw it, I almost cried. I thought, these guys are really into this. I mean, this is serious. I mean, this is like godly. <laughs> and no one would suspect a rap group that had been involved in gangster rap under the Death Row Records label to be involved in something like this, which really intrigued me. No, because I remember... When I was, uh, that that was actually, they were very popular even when I was younger. I think it was like 90, 97, 98. They had, they had yeah. come out with a couple major, Crossroads Rose was one of the hits. Yeah. But I remember the rumors flying around that some of the, some of the members of the band were Satanists. And, you know, who knows? You get this, these, yeah. you know, the it's rumor mill, true. you know how, it, <laughs> you know how that rolls. But, yeah. you know, that was a rumor going around in, in high school. And I'm like, you know, how would you even know? You don't even know these guys. But, um, so it's interesting to hear somebody who's actually been there and talk to them the, the truth about, you know, kind of what they may believe or whatever. Well, when we, when we got into it, we, we got funding from the Words Group, who was a group out of uh, Connecticut that was funding Lee's book. And we started doing recordings with all these guys and many others. I mean, including the last poets. I mean, this is getting into like uh, rap lore. Uh, you'd have to be kind of into the historical idea of how rap started. But they were one of the first rap bands. And, and now the guys were Muslims. And... Here they were rapping the words of Christ. These were Muslims rapping the words of Christ? Uh-huh. Really? Yeah, happily. Yeah. Oh, and man. And we became really good friends with all of them. And it was like there was no preachiness from us because I felt that was, wasn't what we were there to do. Yeah. We're not there to try to save people, but I will answer questions. Sure. I will tell them what I think. And— because I'm going to be who I'm going to be. I'm not. I'm going to be real. I'm not going to foist my faith on someone else unless they ask about it. If they ask, then I'll tell them what I believe. Well, and don't Jesus's words kind of speak for themselves? I mean, if they're they reading do. his words, how cool is that? You got to be put in a position where you have some guys who are Muslims reading the words of Christ from our Bible, and you know maybe a question does come up. You know, that's pretty cool. Well, what was interesting is that this was happening around the same time that Lee was in my studio one day and said, you know, what other documentaries are you thinking about doing? I said, well, one one thing that I've always been interested in is the, is the Bible codes. I'm just fascinated by it. 
and I'd read the book that Michael Drosnin had done, and um, I don't know how much time we got here, man, and I'm going a long time with this, and I apologize. Hey, well, it, it's kind of hard to unfold this quickly. Yeah, it's just take it like um, – if you can condense – just in the next like 10 minutes, uh, get to how you meet L.A., you know, and then we'll, yeah, we'll get into that. the – and then with the last hour. Yeah, then the last hour we'll talk about the projects. Because meeting L.A. was a, a major moment. Really, for I me. can imagine, yeah. Um, and I didn't know it would be, but just just briefly, meeting the rabbis was intertwined with working with the rappers. I mean, I I, I say to people, my life for a while was intertwined with rabbis and rappers, which <laughs> makes no sense to most people. That's a crazy combination, yeah. It's very crazy, but yet I was I was handling it in the same way. Like if if the if the rabbis would ask me about my faith. I would answer those questions, but I wouldn't foist it on them because I know Orthodox rabbis are opposed to Yeshua. Yeah. But I'm not there to start an argument with them on that. And and I don't think that's appropriate, but I will answer questions. And I was just as curious about why they believe what they believe as they were about me. And I still am. Yeah. And this was like, so in 2006, um, I just told Lee that, you know, I wanted to do a film about the Bible codes, but I had no idea how I'd ever do it. I didn't know any of the guys that were involved in it, the world experts. They're all in Jerusalem. I have no money. I'm working on the words project right now. So, I mean, it just seemed like a pipe dream, you know, totally. Mm-hmm. So Lee's working on a project with Ricky Lee Jones. He gets on an airplane and goes to Tokyo. Uh, he gets back about 10 days later and decides to go visit Paul. His brother, who I said was one of the first guys I recorded way back when I first met Lee in 1978, Paul's now a major music guy writing for motion pictures. That's what Paul does. He lives in New York. Hmm. So Lee was flying back to visit him, and they and JetBlue canceled the flight due to bad weather. So he came back to the airport a couple of days later, gets on another JetBlue flight, random seat assignment, puts him next to this dude that looks like a rabbi. Now, that guy happened to be Professor Robert Haralek from <laughs> City University in New York, the guy that was writing algorithms to search the Torah and knew about p-values and probability and statistical you know, significance and all of those things, and was connected with all the world experts that were involved with Torah code research. So they talked for five hours on the plane, and and Robert was amazed that Lee knew anything about the Torah codes. It was because of our discussions that we'd had, and also his father had read the book by Jeffrey Satinover called Cracking the Bible Code. So, you know, and Lee's great to open up conversations with people because he has a brilliant mind. And it, it was, So Lee calls me all excited, landing in LaGuardia, and I'm going, what's he calling me about this time? <laughs> <laughs> I never know with Lee. And he said, uh, I got a guy here that you're going to want to talk to. And I said, okay, who is it? And he explained, and I said, you're kidding, right? And he goes, no. And he, and he tosses the phone to Robert. Bam. I'm connected with the entire world experts on the Torah code, and I didn't even have a thing to do with it. Huh, that Just quick. Wow. And I had no money to do a film. I had nothing, and I'm already working on a show. I can't take time away from what I'm working on, but I'm connected. So a few uh, weeks go by, and I talk with a broadcaster that I thought might be interested in possibly helping to fund a, a film of some sort. 
about the Torah codes. And I said, you know, look, I'm connected with all of these rabbis and professors now. And, but yet I hadn't met Professor Rips, who I'd read so much about in Michael Drosnin's book, and I hadn't met Rabbi Glazerson yet, and I didn't know who Rabbi Glazerson was. And this was 2006. And so I wrote Professor Herlick, and I said, have you guys discovered any new tables that I could show to this broadcaster to get him interested in possibly funding something? And he just writes me back a one-liner, uh, Professor Rips and Rabbi Glazerson will be in Los Angeles tomorrow. Here's their cell phone number. Oh, cool. So I'm going, you know, at that point, uh, I got a little scared because I'm like, this is really weird. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it was a God thing at that point. I had nothing to do with this. I was kind of getting a chill. You know, you get a chill running down your arm mm-hmm. when you realize you're not really doing anything. It's all being done for you. Yeah. And, of course, Galatasaray now, he gives me a big hug and says our, our meeting was divine. He considers it our our getting together a divine occurrence. Hmm. He tells everybody that. So I, I go to meet them, and I'm, I couldn't believe it. It was like I was in a dream. It was like, here's the world expert on the Torah codes, Professor Rips, and here's Rabbi Glazerson, and one of the world experts in ancient Hebrew. And we spent all afternoon together. It was just magical. I couldn't believe it. I mean, these guys were just... Uh, consummate experts you know rips is like a world-class mathematician and and glazerson knows ancient hebrew better than anyone i'd ever met so that's how it all got started and it wasn't until 2014 that we actually got the money thanks to david greenhill that decided to put up the initial funds to do the film and the film we had to wait all that time to do it but then we did the film torah codes end to darkness well, the next year, 2007, I had um, was listening to Coast to Coast AM, which I thought was an interesting show on the paranormal and UFOs and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And this guy who I'd never heard before, L.A. Marzuli, was <laughs> on. And I had been thinking about all the stuff I'd read in the Book of Revelation and in ancient texts and in Daniel and all these other, you know, in the Tanakh. There's all this stuff about... There's this guy who's going to basically screw things up, and this happens just before the return of the Messiah. Of course, in Jewish parlance, it's the Mashiach. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they don't believe that Yeshua is the Christ, and that's okay. I mean, they have their own views, which I respect. I understand why they feel this way now. I didn't before, but I do now. Um. I'm not judging them for that, because I believe in Zephaniah 12, it talks there's going to be this reunification. And and Christians and Jews have to put away their differences, because it's the Jews that gave us the Bible in the first place. And we can't forget that. It's too important that that's where it all came from. All of these scriptures and prophecies and everything else that we have today is because of them. So... I believe that God had been working through them for thousands of years, and now it's all coming to a head. Anyway, um, Marzuli was saying things I was already thinking about. Well, this this creature, this Antichrist character, uh, we would probably think of as an alien. And I'm you know, because scriptures talk about him doing unearthly things. He calls fire down from heaven. He does this, that, and the other thing. And there's all 
all sorts of stuff in ancient texts, in the book of Ezekiel and in many other places where there's unexplainable things going on that that sound like uh, UFO activity in, in the scriptures and high-tech stuff going on. Even back in the time of Exodus, there's things that we still have no explanation of, the, the ephod, the Ark of the Covenant, things that were really going on then. Uh, of course, we could just we could wave it all off. It's the power of God, which I'm not discounting. But there's also sometimes practical methods that God uses to pull off what he wants to do. I think that's also true. And so I did something I never did before, and I felt like in my heart you get this twinge, like if I don't contact this guy, I'm going to be judged for not contacting him. I mean, that's how heavy it was. And I thought, okay, how do I contact L.A. Marzulli? I don't know him, and I dug up his email address, and I sent him a lunch invitation anywhere he wanted to go in Malibu. I'd take him to lunch. I just wanted to meet him and talk to him. I've never done anything like that before. Meanwhile, I have these other projects, the Torah Codes and uh, Words Project, <laughs> working with Bone Thugs and Harmony and everything else. All that was happening simultaneously. So I go meet L.A., and I, I just really thought he was an interesting and incredibly brilliant guy. So time went by, and I, I needed to do like a little promo on the Torah code. So I, I called L.A. I said, would you be willing to appear in this little promo that I'm doing? It was 2009 now. And you, so and you're just agreed. now getting ready to shoot. Are you starting to shoot the Torah codes at this point? <clears throat> I did a little promo in order to raise money to do oh, the film. Oh, okay, okay. So you're shopping for, for producers, basically. Yeah, I'm just I'm shopping for investors, really. Gotcha, yeah. Because I, I didn't really need a lot of people to do it because I knew that by then I had known the rabbis and professors for a little over three years and had a good relationship. I'd flown to Professor Harrelick's house. I'd met privately with all of them, and we got along great. And I think I finally had their trust. And and they didn't want any money. In fact, they would they uh, were almost appalled at the thought of paying him for doing anything. It was like it went against their idea of the purity of the codes and the Torah and all of that. So I've had to learn that, you know, I've had people ask me if I pay them, would they look up something in the codes? I said, no, <laughs> they won't. They don't work that way. Um, so I'm, I feel incredibly uh, humbled to know them and that we have this collaboration together. I think it's really valuable, but anyway, uh, L.A. appeared in this first thing, and I thought he was really good on camera, and he spoke very intelligently, unlike some of the other people that I had worked with in the past that were involved in so-called Christian television. Yeah. And um, and I did the piece, and and then a year later, the really, the economy just completely fell apart out here. I mean, it was, it was horrible. Hmm. And I got a call from L.A. out of the blue. He said, would you direct – a documentary about UFOs for me. And I said, uh, I asked him the usual questions. Do we have any money? First of all, cause it's hard to make a film for free that, yeah. that that's, you know, detailed. And plus I didn't know if I would have any footage to use and it was a hard topic. I mean, you have to have source material to make a film that's any good. 
He said, well, we can interview Dr. Roger Lear, the guy who's the alien implant specialist. And I, I, I'd heard about Dr. Lear. I didn't know him personally at the time. And I said, okay. And when he knew the guy that was uh, doing a cattle mutilation investigation and, and he knew a lot about uh, uh, East Eddy Ranch and what was going on there. And I, and I started researching it too. And I said, okay, I'll do it. Hmm. He had this woman that had basically put up $5,000 to do this film. And it had to be an, an hour long, which was like, I mean, $5,000 That's for an hour. That's not much, was, yeah. It's just like, it was frightening. It's, it yeah. really was. But I guess it was my confidence in L.A. that led me to do it. And I felt like I should do this. I mean, it's a risk for me and my reputation if we blow this. But I'm going to give it a shot. And I, I went into it kind of sweating bullets, hoping that it wouldn't be a bomb. But we did the film. It ended up being something like 54 minutes long. And we didn't hardly have any money to make any copies, DVD copies of it. And I went to, uh, at that time, it was Lightning Media, which has since gone out of business. And the lady there, uh, Mary Pat, which has since become like part of the Watchers family, uh, pressed a hundred copies for me and put them in little jewel boxes. Not, we didn't even have like sleeves or anything. There was no money for that. And LA put it up on his website and a hundred DVDs just flew out the door like in a week. It was unbelievable. Oh, wow. And so we made a little bit of money from that. And I said, well, I guess we need to press real DVDs. Yeah. And, so he said, well, get me a price. And, I, and they, we had to do a 1000 and we had to print a sleeve and get box. I mean, you know the whole deal. So I did that. And those flew out the door faster than we could imagine. And we realized, well, we're on to something here. People want this information. They realize that this isn't just baloney. This is true. Oh, no. Watchers, I mean, Watchers completely blindsided me. When I first saw Watchers, I... It's like, what am I even? What is this? What are they talking about? You know, you mean aliens aren't from outer space? You mean they're they're there's something else? Yeah. They're they're maybe demonic? You know, what is this whole thing? And the more I watched, the more it made sense, and my paradigm just got crushed and and churned and and blended and flushed and and so I was kind of out in left field wondering what do i do now what do i do with this information i couldn't really process it but i wanted more you know and um it was it was watchers and age of deceit i think had come out around that time you know gon shimura did that one and just a few of these films but but watchers is one of them that just really <laughs> captivated me and i think that's why it took off because there's so many people that were being this ancient aliens thing was just being shoved down their throats, you know, and it was the only thing you had to watch right. at the time. Yeah, know? and it was there was no uh, alternative viewpoint, no other idea that maybe maybe the stuff that's in biblical texts is trying to explain this to us. And and I always tell people, I said, look, cut these guys some slack that was writing this stuff three thousand years ago. I mean, they're seeing really crazy supernatural stuff and beings that were glowing and all of this stuff. Now, if we saw that today, we might immediately understand what this is. Oh, it's a spaceship. Oh, it's a it's an alien being, or it's an angel, or it's you know. But back in 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 Bible times, they everything was like described like 
if you if you wanted to tell somebody what color something was, you compared it to a gemstone. Mm-hmm. It was you know it was like glowed like like a ruby or it looked like a beryl stone, you know. And it's like, and now we we don't know what that means. You know, we want a Pantone color chart or we <laughs> we want to, you know, some is it does it look like this you know icon on my Mac or you know we we got to have something that it, we can you know what does it look like in Photoshop? I mean. <laughs> That that's our reality today. Yeah. And so we're much more technically savvy now than they were back then. And yet there was technical stuff going on 3,500 years ago that we have no idea the level of sophistication that was really happening. Yeah. And I, I totally believe this. I mean, it was like there was stuff going on in Egypt that was completely off the hook. Because I mean, when you read about Moses – he throws down his staff, it becomes a snake. And, and and Pharaoh's guys both have staffs, and they both throw them down, and they become snakes. It's like, oh, it's an old trick. Yeah, that's that's old hat. No big deal. I mean, it's like, it's <laughs> like, but think, wait a minute. We, we hear that stuff in churches. They talk about it, and they pontificate. Oh, and, and, and then Moses' staff ate the other two snakes. I'm going, okay, I get that. What about the reality that that was the norm in those days. What about that concept? Why could people even do that and not be shocked? That was the norm. There yeah. was weird mystical magic going on in Egypt, and a lot of it I don't think was from this earth. I think there was other stuff going on, whether it was like uh, Nephilim technology, which I, I think L.A. would probably think that that's probably the case, or if it was angelic technology or fallen angel technology. And what are fallen angels? Would we call them aliens today if we saw them? I, I think we would. I agree. Yeah. I you mean, know, and these are entities that, that have no trouble mixing matter and energy or controlling that or doing things with their minds or, you know, I mean, and people look at it now and they're ridiculing that concept less and less. I mean, now people are talking about, you know, holes in space and, and traveling through dimensions and, you know, portals and, you know, all of this stuff that's going on at CERN. That is part of our our reality today. Mm-hmm. Those conversations are a dime a dozen. They're, everybody's talking about that as if it's, if it's real, even though they haven't experienced it themselves. But if you go back into into the Old Testament, that was their reality then. Yeah, they just didn't know how to describe it in a way that to us makes sense today. And so now we have to go back and understand. It. That's why I'm so interested in my relationship with Rabbi Glazerson, because. Rabbi Glazerson totally believes in UFOs. He goes, oh, well, the scriptures say that, you know, that all that has to happen before Mashiach returns. Hmm. I mean, all of the rabbis, they're not a, even a bit phased by the fact that there's UFOs or aliens. And then we just had this big flap in Turkey recently where there are all these UFOs being seen. Some people say it was fake. Some people say it wasn't. I wrote Jaime Massan about it because there was this floating uh, man have you seen that? Are you talking about the, the one sky? from a few years ago in in Mexico? No, or this are you was talking this about week? No, I have not seen that. There was a, a a floating entity that moved its arms and twisted its body. It was a glowing white person. Does float, it look like floating the... at at least three thousand foot altitude? And the only reason anybody could see it, some guy happened to be in Turkey with a telescope. Really. And 
slapped his video camera onto it, and that's how we're able to see it. Now, I've seen similar sightings. That's what I was going to uh, ask. If it looked like that one, I believe in one of the watchers, you guys actually had some watchers footage. Nine. Yes, you had some footage of one of those humanoids, and I didn't know if it looked if it was similar to that or no. Yeah, it looks similar to that. Uh, Jaime thinks the one in Watchers 9 was a balloon. I'm not so sure what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one in Turkey was in motion and moving, and it was at too high an altitude to to be fake. I mean, it was hmm. – and plus uh, the Kamburgash UFO that I also covered in Watchers 9 was seen in Turkey. Turkey is constantly having UFO sightings. This is the norm there. They're a hot spot, just yeah. like Mexico City is a hot spot and – you know, the uh, Pococate Petal Volcano in uh, Mexico is a hot spot. These kind of areas, there's UFOs. And Pacific Coast Highway around Malibu is another UFO hotspot. Yeah. Well, you guys have done a really brilliant job with the Watcher series of of documenting this and asking the questions without being sensationalistic. And I think that's very important um, when covering these kind of topics to not go over the top or to not just totally say this is what it is and there is no you know there is nothing else to it it's you guys are asking the hard questions um but you're not sitting there saying that you have the answers you, you you're just you're letting us decide and you're letting the research decide and you haven't made the decisions yet as to what you think and i think watchers nine when you guys went in into uh south america and looked at the old megaliths and you know the theory that I believe you guys came up with, how the rocks just look like they're smashed, like marshmallows are smashed together. It does. Oh, yeah. I mean, That's actually how did they do that? Six, but was that six? Nine, we continued with that stuff. But but just recently, because I'm writing a book on the Torah codes, and, and also I've been doing research on the EFOD, which was a very high-tech device that was like a little computer. You could ask it questions, and it would light up with an answer. It's like, how does that work? But... I learned that there were – during the, the building of Solomon's Temple, they weren't allowed to use any metal objects, any metal tools <coughs> – excuse me – to cut the stones. And that in some ancient texts – I don't know if it was the Midrash or the Talmud or one of these ancient Jewish uh, texts – they talk about the stones just floated into position. And I sent this immediately to L.A. I said, this could explain a few things of what we what we saw in Cusco and in uh, Saxe Woman, uh, Peru, that this was a technology that was that was known in mm. those days. I mean, it, it, it was something that they used to manipulate heavy objects and it just worked. Now, how they were able to do it, I don't yeah. don't know particularly, but there was a device called the Worm Shamir. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but yeah. it was a device that could cut stone and engrave gemstones. Some say it was uh, like a a radioactive isotope that you could hold in a little pen kind of device. It was very small, like the they they describe it in size as of a grain of barley corn, and that this thing could cut through rock and everything else, and then it disappeared. We don't know what happened to it. It's a real dangerous thing because it can slice through pretty much anything it's like a lightsaber (laughs) i know it it was that's what they used because they were not allowed to use metal tools so you get to thinking about these i'm just going to interject this thought sure i thought why would they not be able to use a metal object to carve on these stones 
Well, would you use a metal object to carve a screen for an iPhone? No. It's too mm-hmm. high tech. You'd destroy it, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, okay, what about the Urim and Thummim? Now, that's like, uh, in in the interpretation of that from Hebrew, is the perfect lights. Now, I didn't know if, at first if it was the perfect light or perfect lights. You read about the Urim and Thummim being part of the ephod, the breastplate that the high priest wore, mm-hmm. okay? Now, let, let's put aside all of the your, the religious nonsense, and just okay. Here's here's this device that he had. Okay, it was a kind of an apron. Underneath the 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 breastplate was a pocket where they could put a piece of scripture, right? Written scripture. Mm-hmm. The 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 breastplate was put on top of this, and the urim and thummim was put inside the breastplate. Now, I only I only learned about how that was built recently because I've been trying to dig up as much information as I can on this thing. So I write Glazes and I say, was the Urim and Thummim the perfect lights or the perfect light? And he writes me back from Jerusalem, it's lights, plural. Hmm. So now that's like, okay, we have some kind of illuminated light panel in segments that fits behind the breastplate of the ephod. And that's what's lighting up these stones. Which would have to be LED-type technology to be that small. Exactly. And would you use, like, a metal object to hammer away on something like that? No, you'd no. kill it. Yeah. Right? Wow. So this is high-tech stuff. Now, what we don't know is how these things were triggered, you know, and everyone said, well, it was the power of God. Well, no doubt. There was some connection to God where he wanted to be able to communicate with his people, and he did it through, like, this little computerized device, okay? This mm-hmm. this iPhone with breastplates, <laughs> okay? <laughs> All right? I mean, I'm just saying, I'm not saying, like, you know, they used uh, iTunes or anything like that as part of the breastplate. It probably could have done it if they'd wanted it to, but I'm just saying, this was a high-tech device yeah. where people could ask it questions. Now, here's even weirder. You go, well, what do they use this for? And God wanted all of his people to be involved with him. Now, we we learn that in the Christian faith later because Yeshua comes and and becomes one of us and wants to interact with us, which is really kind of a profound thought. It's very, very sci-fi when you think that Christ himself was the first hybrid, right? He's part man and part, we would say, God. Mm-hmm. He has DNA from two different places, and he's interfacing with us. And, you know, in John 14, you're, they're saying, you know, he's saying, he who has seen me has seen the Father, because the DNA they're sharing, he looks like the Father. I mean, this is high-tech stuff. All of it is. It goes all through the entire Scripture, I get really excited about this because now they're talking my language. This is what I just, I love this stuff. I mean, this to me is like watcher's material. Yeah. Because it, and it helps us understand what's going on in biblical texts all these, all these centuries that this is all connected. And it's, this is very high tech stuff. And just like the, you know, we had the Nephilim, which were an, uh, basically a hybrid, which created the whole giant thing 
mm-hmm. that was evil. Instead, we have the godly thing in Yeshua, also a hybrid, which basically is is there to to save us from all of the this stuff that's going on and basically take us away from having to do animal sacrifices and all of those things. Basically, it's a whole it's a whole fresh thing for humanity. And of course, the the Jewish leadership at the time couldn't embrace it because they're still looking at the Ten Commandments, and the first commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So they looked at Yeshua as being, oh, well, this guy's a fraud. Yeah. We're warned about this. And you have to understand that that's how they how they thought and and still do, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And Christians have been mean and nasty to them. I mean, the Methodists have taken the side of not, you know, allowing Israeli uh, uh, products. Uh, you know, it's like in the some of the Presbyterians are that way, and it's like they've not been treated good by Christians. I, I you know, I don't want to be that way. I want to support Israel any way that I can, which I try to do in the Torah Code film as much as possible, because I we owe them a debt of gratitude for the literature that we have because of the Jews. We wouldn't even know about these things if it hadn't been for them. Oh, yeah. And and anybody who goes against Israel, it doesn't turn out very good for them either. So, you know, I'm just saying it's probably not a good idea to, to go against them. Um, you know, a lot of what we're talking about with the technology, you you do cover in Torah Codes and the Darkness. Um, in fact, I was very fascinated by some of the parts where, uh, the gentleman that was on there is talking about how it references UFOs in, in some cases. And it, and it shows that there, maybe there was some different technology and you guys even talk about the ephod in there and the fact right. that maybe the Torah codes are the new modern day ephod, you know, that this yeah. could be the re- re- replacement for that. Um, let's give people an idea of what they can expect when they when they watch the film, just a, a a little overview of of what they can expect. Because there may be some people out there who are like, you know, I've heard of the Torah codes, I don't really get it. What is it? Um, so if you would give us a brief overview of just what they're going to expect, and then and then we'll cover a little bit of uh, some of the different topics briefly. Sure. And, you know, just punch me if I go too long on anything. I'm okay. happy to, to stop. <laughs> I'll jump in if I have to, but I, and I never great. know. I don't have a prepared script when I do these interviews, and I just pray beforehand. I said, I don't know what I'm going to say, Lord. Just give me the words of whatever it is I'm supposed to talk about, and this is kind of what happens. Yeah, so, I, yeah I'm the same way. I don't have a script. I don't. I have some questions that I've written up, and if I get to them, great. If I don't whatever. I just like to have a conversation and see where it goes. And, and, uh, so yeah, just, to just give us an overview of, of, uh, of the film. And then there's a couple things we'll hit on as we go. Well, sure. Uh, there's a great clip that I have on the Pinlight site at pinlight.com, P-I-N-L-I-G-H-T.com. And it's, it's, it's a clip that I borrowed from YouTube and embedded in my site uh, of a segment of a movie called Pi that was produced, like I think, in 1998, mm-hmm. and it's this this uh, rabbi comes in. <coughs> excuse me, I've been fighting off this cold for the past two weeks. This rabbi comes in and he's talking to the star of the show, who's like a brilliant mathematician and computer programmer. The kind of people that I know that are doing Torah code film, but he doesn't know about that. This rabbi comes in and say, yeah, the whole 
the whole Torah is just a, a book of numbers from when, and he, he just rips off, you know, you know, Aleph and, you know, Bet, and he goes through all the different characters and this is one and this is four and, and man and, and child and, and husband and wife and, and all the numbers just, just fit together like a glove. It's incredibly fascinating. And then he gets down to this other number and our star says, Oh, that's uh, theta. And he goes, what? what, what are you talking about? And he said, that's, that's the golden spiral. That's that's the Greek spiral. That's uh, uh, and he shows how the numbers that are in the Torah are basically describing this stuff. And and then he realizes by the end of the clip that that the Fibonacci sequence, the file, the the spiral, it is found everywhere in nature. I mean, like the rabbi was smoking and blows smoke rings, and they start curling up through the air just like the Fibonacci spiral. And and he pours like some cream into his coffee and it's doing the same thing. And he realizes now that the Torah is connected with everything. And it freaked him out and he slammed the book shut and ran out the door. It was like it was too much for him. And people realize that all of the all every letter in the Torah has always been given a number. That's what gematria is. It's not a creepy divination thing. It's not demonic. It has nothing to do with that. This has to do with mathematics. Every letter is given a number. It's done for a reason. We hear it all through Scripture. If you if you believe in the Bible, if you're a Christian or if you're a Jew or you're a Muslim, you know that the Torah is respected by the three world's main leading religions. It's a very remarkable book, and there's no other set of books quite like it in Scripture. And it's encoded. And for centuries, there were guys that thought it was encoded. But they were just looking at the gematria and trying Mm -hmm. to figure out what that was all about. You know, what, okay, so this guy's name means number 43. What does that mean to us? Or... And then there's the secret number of God, which is in Gematria of 1820, which ends up in so many instances, it's more than coincidence. It's like the number 1820 comes up in in many curious places, uh, just unbelievable. <clears throat> but then it wasn't until the early 1950s that Rabbi Weissmandel, another mathematician out of New York, discovered ELS, which is equidistant letter sequencing, that if you skipped every so many letters, you would get words that would appear, and they were repeatable in all five books. And he found out that Genesis, it said Torah, and Exodus, it spelled Torah. In Leviticus, it spelled, uh, at first I thought that they had found Hashem, but actually it was Yahweh. And then in the book of Numbers, it was spelled Torah backwards, and in the book of Deuteronomy, it's spelled Torah backwards. And this is counting with his finger he discovered all this. So I'm saying, okay, this is a huge clue. Mm-hmm. If you can find something easy enough just to be counting through Hebrew characters with your finger and you come up with repeatable results, then what else is in there? And And then you read passages like in Daniel chapter 12, where it says, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Now, how do you seal a book everybody's already reading? Hmm. The only way you can do that is to encrypt it. You're embedding information into the scripture. Now, there's other books that are probably also encrypted. And I've talked to Professor Rips about this, who's a, a, a 
and brilliant mathematician, a dear, sweet friend. Uh, I respect him greatly. And, and also Rabbi Glazerson, uh, who, I don't know, Rabbi Glazerson seems at this point more like family than anything else. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I, I can't believe the, the stuff that they come up with. And this is not demonic. This is, has nothing to do with uh, Satanism or being tricked by the devil or people have said those things on my YouTube channel. And I'm going, these people haven't got a clue. They don't know what they're talking about and they've never studied this themselves. They're just spouting off random information. This stuff is in there for us in our generation. We have to dig it out and find out what it's all about. Yeah. These now, are probably people happened, who have never even seen the documentary either, I imagine, because you you do a pretty good job of explaining how it works, why it works, and the fact that it's not being used for divination. You know, you, you really couldn't even do that. You have to know of an event to look up what you're looking for anyway, you know? Right. So... Right. It, it's not like... Here's what people, there's a misconception. They people, okay, I want to put Donald Trump into the codes and it's going to tell me all about him. It doesn't work that way. You have to look up specific topics a priori, you know, chosen in advance, basically. Mm-hmm. You look for Donald Trump in the Torah codes and, uh, well, let's put, try to see if president comes up next to him. Let's see if, if he will be elected, it comes up next to it. And they found all that stuff. But what is really the most scary thing, and and which um, I've set out to some of my friends, and and what we're concerned about right now is that there was a table that Professor Rips found and sent me. He's really worried about America, what's going on here with with the the problems between the left and the the, the rest of the political scene that's going on right now. Mm -hmm. Um, He found this table that said... Uh, D. Trump, and then next to it, in a vertical sentence, it says, name of the assassin. And this table uh, had a p-value or probability value of occurring as one in two million chance. Oh, wow. That these letters would be found in complete sentences in parallel rows next to each other. So he sent it to me. And he never does this. Rips does not make predictions in the codes. He's he's written and spoke against doing that. But when he found this, it concerned him because the statistical nature of it was so high, he didn't know what to say. Yeah. Well, he sent this to me before we started getting all these pictures on the Internet where it said kill Trump. You know, it was like graffitied on walls. You've seen these pictures, I'm sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brandon. Another one said kill Trump supporters. Hmm. Now, we don't know if these are being paid by George Soros to, you know, scrawl this on buildings or whatever. It's a good chance, but yeah. Yeah, it's a good chance that this is all set up. But nevertheless, uh, here it is. The codes are reflecting that. Well, then, Glazerson, I said, look, would you please look at this table for me that Rip sent and see what you can discover? So Glazerson looks at it, and he finds something I, I don't know what to say, and and I'm not saying this is a prediction because I can't do that, and I would probably be wrong. I'm looking at it. Is this the I'm one that I saw earlier today? Yeah, it says okay. Kislev 5, December 5. Now, Kislev is the month, the Hebrew calendar month, which refers to our December, mm-hmm. okay? 
Uh, now, it's it just like Chess Fan was last month, November. The the date for the election in the Hebrew calendar was, was Chess Fan 7. For us, it was November 8th. But those two dates are the same. Okay? So okay. you're getting me so far? Yep. So now we have Kislev 5. Now, weirdly, Kislev 5 and December 5 are the same day. Hmm. doesn't happen every every year. Underneath that, it says murder. The key word set for this table is D-Trump, United States. Right under that is threat. The word Cyrus appears. And to the right of Cyrus is the Mashiach, which Cyrus was a form of a Messiah. If you go back in the book of Ezra and read that, he helped Israel rebuild the temple and all of that. Mm-hmm. Right underneath Donald Trump's vertical line is the word president. If you want me to show this table, I can... You, I yeah, go for it. On my yeah, screen. Sure. Uh, just give me one second here to switch screens. Yeah, it was it was pretty... Um, it was alarming, I, I guess. It would be the, the best way to put it. Um, <laughs> and like you said, it's not like this is anything that's guaranteed to happen because until that day passes, we will not know what to really look for. You know? No, um, we, we don't. And, and this... This may just be a threat, like it says, sure, threat. Yeah. It says threat, but this is the table, and you know we're, we're always careful about showing this kind of information. But so uh, both Professor Rips and Rabbi Glazerson wanted me to get these tables to Donald Trump. Well, I don't know Donald yeah, how Trump do you do personally. that, yeah. you know, and I said – and, and Glazerson writes me back and said, well, we can get it to his son-in-law. I said, well, I would need his personal email address. Well, D- Donald Trump's son-in-law is married to um, Ivanka. Mm-hmm. So they gave me his his personal email address, and I wrote him a very heartfelt letter. I said, look, this is information coming out of a 3,300-year-old Torah. I said, you're an Orthodox Jew, so you know what I'm talking about. I don't know what to make of it. None of us do, but we want to warn you that this is what has come up and just to be extra careful. <laughs> and of course, when I told my friend Bob that I had done this, he said, well, there'll be black uh, uh, SUVs appearing at your door any moment now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking that I'm the, the going to try to assassinate Trump. And that's not it at all. We were warning them that this came up in the Torah codes and we don't know what to do about it. When Professor Rips gets this concerned, I have to take notice because he never does this. This hmm. is this is out of character. He's really concerned, and and most of their Jewish friends and many of the rabbis that I've heard talking consider Trump a form of a Messiah, like King Cyrus was the Book of Ezra. Now, here's how weird this gets. I'm just gonna leave you with this. If you go to Ezra and look, uh, I can switch back. If you, you've probably seen this long enough, yeah. But um, uh, hang on, I'm just a little distracted here, trying to run the computer and talk. Yeah, it's not a very seamless thing when you're dealing with the share screen. No, it's it's not. I have to think about what I'm doing. There we go. Uh, Anyway, if you go to the book of Ezra, chapter 2, verse 63, it's basically it's talking about this whole genealogical thing of all of these uh, Israeli people that were lined up to be basically counted because they had been in captivity for years. Mm-hmm. And, and now uh, 
King Cyrus was helping them. And so they were all lined up. There were 365 of these guys and 425 of the tribe of blah, blah, blah. It's those kind of things where you're like, yeah, it's just everything. Yeah. And so I'm reading this, and I'm like, okay, when does this end? And I get down to the bottom, and there were a few people that didn't know their heritage. It had gotten lost. They didn't have their papers. Their papers, please. They didn't have that, okay? They were. Now, here's where it gets really weird. They were told to report to the high priest and be ministered to by the Urim and Thummim. Hmm. So the ephod was going to tell them who they were. And here we are talking about King Cyrus and looking him up in the Torah codes. Now, that just freaked me out. I mean, that's just getting too weird. It's like here we are now in the 21st century using another tool to try to find out what's going on with President-elect Trump in comparison, you know, comparing him to uh, King Cyrus in those biblical days, and those guys were looking at a computerized device for answers just like we are today. If that's not the weirdest thing, I don't know what is. Yeah, it's um, it's it's pretty interesting times that we're living in. I mean, you know, the, the Bible says that it'll be like in the days of Noah, and we have no idea what that was like, but we have to assume that it was, you know, I'm one of those that believes that there was a lot of technology that we don't even have now back then. Oh, yeah. I mean... No I, doubt. You know, it's just... There was too much going on. The genetic manipulation that had to have been ha- happening at the time is far beyond anything that we're doing now, although we're getting very close, I believe. Um, I'm sure there's black... La- or, you know, black laboratories that are doing things that we have no clue, have been for years. Um, yeah, we'll just watch the HBO series Westworld. Oh, I don't know if I could even get through the first five minutes. That's what, what I've I mean, heard is pretty disturbing. It's weird. And, and you know, if they're doing a, a film about it, you got to know that something like this is happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a pretty it's a it's a it's a crazy time we're living in. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. back in the days of Babel, you know, Tower of Babel, they said that there was literally nothing that they could do. You know, nothing that was that that they couldn't accomplish, and we're really coming close to what I think is that time that we're, we're getting to where there's not a whole lot we can't accomplish anymore. And that's, that's a little right. frightening. Well, you know? And I have talked about the tower of Babel before and, you know, just giving it a tertiary read when you, when you go into that and realizing that people's uh, heads were, was dealt with and nobody could speak their original language anymore. And they were all changed. Mm-hmm. Really quickly, we think it was a DNA change that happened electrically somehow to everybody. But Do you I, think that's where the different races came from? I, I I think that a lot of things happened that we're not really given. Yeah, very very much so. It could be that. But what I didn't understand was when I was a kid and I'd read that story. Oh, they're building a tower to heaven. That's ridiculous. You know, we've got like tall buildings and we don't say they're going to heaven. And I'm yeah. sure our buildings are much taller than that was. But when I when I talked to Glazerson about it, this was early on when I just barely knew him, and I didn't want to ask him about UFOs because I thought he would think I was nuts. <laughs> and, and he's the one brings up the subject, and he he said, "Oh yes, the Tower of Babel was a launching platform for space vehicles." Really? Now I'm going, what? <laughs> he really now thinks? This, huh? This is my my rabbi 
buddy that I love so much that looks like Elijah telling me this. And it's like, uh, wow, we don't know anything. Hmm. That's just, crazy it, that these... It's, it's in the Jewish mystical texts that we never study or, or hear about. And, and most Christians would poo-poo it as being, you know, blasphemous. Or I mean, we have silly notions about the Jewish faith and what they know. I want to know what they know. And they need to know what we know. We need to get together and put aside all this nonsense and try to learn. We don't have time to fart around anymore. This is yeah. like we're down to the last days here of stuff happening. We need this information. We really do. Well, and, and mystical doesn't mean occult either, you know. No. It's absolutely just, it's not. more mysterious, you know. It's not it's not an occult thing, but the idea of a <clears throat> UFO launching platform, I never I I can think for well, me, see, I was thinking more along the lines and the of Midrash and the Talmud and, of course, the Kabbalah. Now, a lot of Christians say, oh, the Kabbalah, that's like demonic. Well, look, there's things that you could you could. You take you take the good out of these things and learn from them. If you, you don't have to agree with all the concepts in these texts. And I and I know, like, you know. I know even Professor Harrelick believes that some of the stuff in the Midrash is probably some rabbi's wet dream. That's what he's actually told me. <laughs> and oh, and I wow. mean, I'm just putting things in the vernacular that we how we discuss these things. It's very <laughs> real to us. This stuff. It, this is not just like nonsense. It's yeah. like somebody wrote this and had some reason to say these things. I don't understand why, but it doesn't mean I should just blow it off as being nonsense or is it being demonic or, you know, everything that Christians don't understand is immediately labeled as demonic. And it's not, we're just ignorant of, of what they know. And they're the ones that brought us the scriptures. So I think we just have to put that aside and try to learn from them. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I want to encourage everybody to go out and get a copy of Torah codes End to darkness, because you guys touched on a lot of things. It wasn't just about Torah codes. I thought that, um, you guys really captured what it's like to live in a country that's being that's under threat at all times. What it's like oh, to yeah. live in the constant threat of being attacked at all times. I mean, you literally don't know when the next attack is is coming. And no, that's true. And, and what's funny is none of, none of the Christian organizations that have television uh, did anything to. Uh, to ask for broadcast rights to the Torah code film, but Jewish life television wanted to do that. Which is huge. Cause they're huge over there. Yeah. And so they're there. We're on, we're going to be on JLTV starting in January for the next two years. They're going to air Torah codes almost once a month. Awesome. And <clears throat> you know, it's, this could really help us. It will give us a international exposure and it's going to be on Comcast and Spectrum and uh, some really big networks will be on direct TV. Hmm. And so if you, you know, can't afford to, to buy a copy, buying a copy of the film helps us because it allows us to make more films. But if you just want to watch the film, you can see it on JLTV. There will be commercials in the film and there won't be in the video, but I mean, I can show you this. This is this is the film on DVD, which, you know, as, as much as I'm happy to promote this, I would rather have you buy 
the Blu-ray of it because – and it, I've got a lot of glare on it. Can you see it OK? Yeah, yeah. I mean – and it's not because the Blu-ray is all that more expensive. It's $2 more and then you get two discs. You get the DVD inside and you get a Blu-ray. So if, if you don't have a, a Blu-ray player, you can still play it because there's a disc for you in there. And people don't seem to understand that. It's the way the studios put out stuff now. Well, they give you a DVD and a Blu-ray. But the idea is that we're showing very complex tables, and they just darn look better in high def. I mean, yeah. you can see them more clearly. Yeah, I watched it on digital high def, and it was pretty amazing. Um, yeah, you I, can you can run it on Vimeo or download it on Vimeo in HD. That's another – I mean, we basically got it in any way you want it. Now, is it available on Amazon as well? Is that an option? Well, it's it, you can buy the film on Amazon. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. it's not okay. on Amazon Video, but it it you can get the DVDs on Amazon. And if you go to our website, endtodarkness dot com, you can order it in any of its forms. And cool. then any of the Watcher stuff, like we currently have, like this. And I hope this doesn't look too silly. This is all of the Watchers films, all ten of them. Oh sweet! Now it doesn't it doesn't include the eleventh film. The eleventh film is the the one we did on the ferry to show that the ferry was fake. That's out on this little DVD here. It's basically called Anatomy of a Hoax, <clears throat> where we prove that the ferry was fake. But we're we're currently working on an eleven DVD set, if you can believe it. It's a hugely expensive process, but Watchers yeah. one through. 10.2 i don't want to call it 11 but there was 11 discs in the in the batch should be out within the next couple of weeks well and i've got to give you guys props on on how you handled the the hoax instead of just trying to bury it and act like it didn't happen which is what a lot of other places would probably do you guys embraced it and you said, look, you know, we've never said this was legit. We had information. And, and and I will tell you, watching Watchers 10, of course, we all want this to be real. So watching Watchers 10 sure. and looking at the x-rays, because all you had was some x-rays, it right. looked like calcium deposits in the proper places. It really did. I mean, and then you see the bird shot in there. You're thinking, well, somebody shot it out of the sky, because that's how your mind works when you're seeing something right. like this. You want to believe. It's like the X-Files. I want to believe. But... Yeah. You know, um, the cool thing was when you guys were examining it, it's starting to dry up, and you're seeing this, you immediately think, okay, I'm going to document this. I'm going to make sure we get this we, we get this on film, and we're just going to show people how you can be fooled, you know? And I think that was really cool. I think that, as if you guys needed to prove any integrity to me anyway, but that really, I think, shows the non-Christians out there who might come across you know, like watchers tend to be like, that's obviously fake and, and they know it and they're trying to put it over. Well, no, we didn't know it. And here, here's the, here's us telling you that we, we thought we saw something that wasn't there. And so I, I, I really think that's fantastic. I think the way you guys handled that was the way to do it. Uh, instead of damage control and taking a broom and sweeping it under the rug and acting like it didn't happen. No, embracing it fully and showing, Showing it for what it was was fantastic, and I'm I want to I'm looking forward to seeing the hoax. I want to see the video because I want to see how they made it. It was really well made. It really was. It was, it was really. I mean, it fooled uh, two veterinarians, and it wasn't until we actually took new X-rays of it and started picking around at its internal parts and pulling things out of its body that we realized 
Oh, what's this? Oh, that's a piece of wood there. Yeah. Oh, what's this thing? Oh, that's a piece of plastic. And then all of a sudden we realized that this thing had been assembled. But even after we discovered that, I told LA, I said, we still haven't answered all the questions yet. And I said, we've got to find someone that will tell us what creatures this thing was made from, because I'm still not sure, even after we've done all this. Absolutely. And and L.A. is really good at tracking down people that are good at these various things. And we ended up going to a zoologist in in Santa Barbara. And he, he pulls out drawers, you know. Oh, this is my uh, bat parts drawer. <laughs> <laughs> and he has like a dead bat bone section. Oh, oh look, man. this is the same as, you know, on your x-ray here. And so then we pulled out the actual fairy and stuck it on his desk. And he picks through and he goes, oh, this is bat. This is bat. This is bat. Oh, this is a head from a, a stillborn primate. Like a Really? Monkey. So somebody yeah. put a lot of money into this, man. I mean, this wasn't. This wasn't... <clears throat> Here's what I think happened. Here's what I think happened. Jaime bought this creature. Uh, that they called the Metapet creature. And that's in Watcher 7. You can see it's like this little curled up thing. Some people say it's a squirrel monkey. Some people don't know what it is. It was alive briefly and killed because it scared the people that saw it. Jaime bought this thing so they could do further testing on it. They still don't really know what it is or I'm not sure of it. And since he bought that, I think that that got out because he has 3 million viewers of his television show on UFOs yeah. in Mexico city. I think at that point, someone who was a really good taxidermist said, Oh, I'll make something that, that he'll have to pay real money for hmm. that. He can't refuse. He can't turn this down. And they, they wove this whole fake tale around it. They had this kid who finds it and he comes in with his mother. She has it in a jar in her purse. We show all this in the film pulls it out, and it looks real. I mean, when you look at it, you go, how could anyone... And I've gotten really close to this thing. I've seen it. I've handled its arm, you know, all of that stuff. It looked it looked real. And, and the reason why, it was made from real animal yeah. parts. Yeah, it looked totally legit, especially on HD. I mean, you guys filmed it in HD, and it looked yeah. legit, man. It yeah, really did. It, it really looked legit. And, you know, but at the end of Watchers 10, we said we still don't know. We're still working on getting this done. People don't realize it takes time to do this stuff. I mean, this thing had to be driven from Mexico City to Los Angeles. You can't take it on a plane. It's a bottle of formaldehyde. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you can't take liquids on a plane. So, so this had to be driven in, had to go through customs, had to come through all the proper channels. And, you know, we get it in here and then it ends up in a lab where we can actually look at it. We were all thrilled to actually see this thing and handle it and touch it and figure out what is this. You know, when we say handle it and touch it, it was basically get it under an x-ray machine. And and now x-rays are so cool. You just you x-ray it and it's immediately up on the computer screen as a JPEG. You know, yeah. you can you no waiting for film anymore. That's all like old technology. So we're looking and zooming in on this x-ray, and and Dr. Barry, who was really cool, really a fun guy to work with there at the animal shelter, guy's really hip. He's got tattoos all over his arms and stuff, you know, (laughs) and he's really knowledgeable, just a real character. And he told me when we left, he said, hey, if you ever have any other weird creatures, you know what they are, bring them over. We'll check it out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's a great guy because so many of those guys are real sheepish. They don't want to be tied to anything weird. They don't want people to think they're stupid. You know, it's like, no, we just we want to know what this is. So what's wrong with that? People are like gutless. 
they're spineless wimps. Well, the whole them. scientific Freak of their reputations, yeah. you know, more than the truth. Well, and that's why Darwinism, nobody challenges it because they don't want to lose their tenure or anything else. And oh, the, totally. Absolutely. Um, you know, we've got six minutes left. Uh, this, oh. uh, what are you doing now? What are you working on now? Give us, uh, give us an idea of, of what we're going to be looking for in the future here from Pinlight, you in L.A. Well, uh, I, I'm personally hoping to get the money together to do a second Torah Code film because I have so much more new material. But it's it's really it's really expensive doing Torah Code films because I have to go to Israel and have to spend time there. I have to bring this time I can't ask so many people to come and not get paid. I mean, last time everybody just wanted to help and came. And, you know, we managed to pull off that film uh, on a shoestring. And it doesn't look like it, but it was a shoestring. And this time I can't do that. So I, I've yeah. got to have more of a professional-sized budget to do it. Not an incredibly expensive budget, but one that's more comparable to, to the quality level we're pulling off. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping to do that. It would be uh, Torah codes or the Messiah codes in the Torah. Because hmm. the whole earth is teetering on the brink of some sort of a revelation, whether it's UFOs or or it's it's the you know the the imams in uh, the, the Islamists believe that their Messiah is coming, their Mahdi will come out down in a spaceship. I mean that came out in WND a couple months ago. I couldn't hmm. believe it that they would say something like that. Yeah. That's really crazy. And then you know, of course, the Jews are looking for the Messiah, who they think is either Moses or Elijah. And, and bless their hearts, they're doing everything they can. They're using Gematria. They're using the Torah codes. They've started a website just for everybody to dump their information about what they're discovering. Uh, Glazerson works night and day on this stuff. He sends me all of his tables. Professor Rips, is, you know, is, is there. Uh, Professor Rips doesn't look so much into Messiah codes as he is on some of the stuff like like Trump lately. I can't believe he's doing it because he loves America and he's worried about what's happening over here. He's mm-hmm. definitely concerned for us, and because he knows that what happens in America affects Israel hugely. Yeah, and there's you know? been man since the election, there is something tangibly different since the election. I mean, you can feel it. There has been a shift of some kind. Yeah, and. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's because the enemy is 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 mad, and they they thought they were going to put somebody in, and it didn't happen, and now they're railing against it, or it could go the other way. Maybe Trump's not what we all think. I don't know. Um, no, I think you're right in the first count. I think this was so unprecedented, and they they so misjudged the middle America's ability to vote in a president, and they mm-hmm. were so everybody was so tired of the status quo in Washington and just the talk and no do and, you know, higher taxes and less freedom and, and all the stuff that was going on and worrying about whether our kids are going to be sharing private, you know, restrooms in elementary school and nonsense like yeah. that, yeah. you know, uh, healthcare that's, that's basically fizzling and falling apart from every angle and everybody's and deductibles going through the roof and becoming un- totally unaffordable, especially it's based on age. So if you're, if you're older, it's, you, you can't afford it. You, no. So you have to pay the, the penalty in taxes. It's, it's really a racket. It's, it's really completely got to be 
ripped apart and changed. And the Democrats seem completely um, close-minded to this. It's like they won't admit their own mistakes and they just blame other people for it. This is something that, that they do all the time. Of course, Trump just went out there and just kind of blundered in and just said whatever he felt <laughs> like saying. And we're all kind of going, ah. <laughs> so yeah. finally somebody's saying what we all think and doesn't care what they think about it, but it's, it, you know, we're also worried about his safety because of this, because he's, he's making people pretty upset. Well, they did let Hinckley Jr. out. So, you know, better keep an eye on that guy. You never know what he's yeah. going to try to pull. Uh, yeah. It's just weird times. Richard, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, this is probably, you know, one of the craziest times. It is the craziest time I've ever seen. I've only been around for 36 years, but you know, it's, I I know that the world's been in some weird places. And so has the U S before, but this is weird. I've never had, I've never had this. It's tangible, man. It's tangible. I can feel it. Something is, is really, and, and I, even people that, are my friends. I can tell they're agitated. There's issue. There's just, it's heaviness that's going on. And, and so I hope, you know, I hope the people of this country get it and, and they, that we get on our knees and we repent and we, we turn back to the only one that can fix this. And, uh, well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there's all these things happening. And I mean, I mean, you know as well as I do, everybody's talking about Planet X or they're talking about disclosure mm-hmm. and all of these other issues, too, that seem really fringe, really like coast-to-coast AM kind of material <clears throat> that you'd hear on George Norrie's show. And, you know, George is a great guy. I love and respect him a lot. But still, most people don't realize this stuff is really happening. And and what's strange is that what's happening in the in the Jewish faith is they believe that the planet X phenomenon, Nibiru, has to come at the time of Messiah. Really? It's in all of their ancient texts, and it's coming up in the Torah codes now. That's why I want to do this second film so badly. Yeah. But but on top of that, um, L.A. and I are working on uh, The Best of Watchers, where we're going to take all ten and a half films and do segments so that you can get it all on one DVD. If you don't have $100 to buy all 11 discs, you can get this one. Oh, cool. So that's one thing I'm working on. And then we, we may do another one. I, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do yet this year. I'd wanted to do a Watchers on Disclosure because yeah. Stephen Bassett, who is the D.C. lobbyist for Disclosure, has writes me. And, you know, they all thought that John Podesta would come through with some kind of thing and make the government come clean on what they know. And now we find out that John Podesta is involved in all this crooked stuff. Oh, but that's fake, Richard. You know, that's it's fake really news. weird. Yeah, there's some – that's a whole other show right there. But there is – there. I, I really believe what's happening right now is, you know, it's an Ezekiel moment in this country. I think God is is showing us what we've allowed. I really do. Uh, look at Norway. Norway just busted a huge pedophile ring, and they're throwing politicians, cops, high-level people in prison. I mean, they're they're all being indicted. Oh um, yeah, and here we have Pizzagate. Yeah, the thing, the same thing happened in Australia. You know, God is is. It's like He's tearing the veil of darkness away and being and just saying, "Look what's co- look what's been caused." Normally, something like yeah. Pizzagate they could squash. 
They can't squash it. They've tried. They yeah. shut down 4chan. They shut down Reddit. They shut down um, every one of these research sites that they were digging this up. They've they've effectively shut all of them down, and it's not stopping it. It's just gaining yeah, and they, steam and rolling. They'd love to close down Breitbart and Drudge Report and all the rest of them. You well, know, now like we, them. we maybe we know why Andrew Breitbart was killed now, because it sure looks like he knew something. He knew a lot yeah, more a, than we there's knew. There's a Torah code I had on Breitbart that said he was poisoned. I, I don't doubt it for a second. I mean, the, yeah. there is a lot of. I mean, he the tweets he put out there before he was he was uh, removed from this earth sure makes you wonder what he knew and what he didn't know. Um, I don't know. That's, <laughs> well, I what's mean, interesting, you know, when Kellogg's came out and said they weren't going to advertise on Breitbart anymore, their stock fell by almost two points. So it's like really like overnight, two hundred and fifty thousand people rode in to, to boycott Kellogg's. I mean, that's so that's how powerful. Uh, the right is becoming and now the left has labeled it as the alt-right it's like a new badge like like you're crazy you're a white supremacist you're a uh, you know it's just it's crazy what they're saying yeah. it has no basis in any actual fact it's the new conspiracy theory you're moniker. the kkk you're i mean it's like yeah what? <laughs> well, that's what they always do. They they throw labels. If you say anything, you're a racist or you're a homophobe or you're a bigot or you know, it's time that we stand up and say, no, you know, that's like that that's like playground talk. You know, I'm not playing your playground talk game anymore. If you want to do that, go somewhere else. I'm not I'm not listening. I'm not a racist. Exactly. I know who I am. Go away. You know, we're we're done with this. We're not doing this political correctness thing anymore. Get out of here. Because that's the only way it's going to stop is we just squash it when it starts. We just squash it, tell them to get lost because we're not playing the game anymore. I think we're all sick and tired of it, you know? Yeah. And no one trusts the mainstream media. It's gotten, it, it's hit an all time low of only 6% of people actually believe it. And, and this is because <laughs> we've, they've been exposed. They have. We, we know now that it's just all baloney what they're telling us. It's, 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 it's corporate mantra that, that comes down from the top. And and years ago, before we moved back out to Hollywood, uh, my wife, Mary, worked at, for Turner Entertainment. And this is before all this happened. And right about the time we were moving, uh, CNN was getting bought out by AOL. It's never been the same since. Mm-hmm. Now, AOL doesn't know anything about broadcasting. They didn't know anything about news. They just bought this big mega company. They fired some of the best people. Like uh, at the time, I knew David Goodnow, who you might remember in those days, was like heading up headline news. You'd, you'd turn on headline news, you get actual news. This happened today. It was like really quick, you know, little snippets of news. It was yeah. really helpful. Now it's just like complete baloney. You listen to it now, and it's like, oh, this is just like, you know, they got some babe on there reading a teleprompter, some young girl. It's not even a really a reporter or knows how to be a journalist. It's just it's it's basically to look good, and 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 Fox has gotten into that a lot too. Oh, and I gosh. wouldn't you can, do that. You can literally go from station to station to station, and and you can that you can start one place. They'll start reading the news, and you can flip and flip and flip, and by the end, you'll have gone to ten different stations, and you'll have got the complete story because it's the same one. It's They're, the same story. It all yeah. comes down from the Associated Press or, or Reuters, and they all. I mean, this is the corporate mantra. This is what they're supposed to read. I visited a Fox affiliate uh, about a year ago up north around Fresno area and listened to their news broadcast. I was in the studio while they were doing it, and 
they can't do local news anymore there. They can't come up with their own stories like they used to because they used to cover my Torah code stuff. One of the guys there really liked what I was working on. I thought it was interesting and used to cover it for me. And he said, we can't do that anymore. The, the corporate won't allow us to do it. So, I mean, it, everything's getting really weird and closed and we're losing our our, our freedoms Completely and our controlled. ability for free speech. Yeah, it's uh... – it is scary, man. It's very scary. Um, we are we're over already. We can oh, we, we ought to get no. It's not your fault. I um, if if we go too much past two hours, I think people start dropping off. But yeah. um, we ought to get together and again and just have a conversation about you know the whole disclosure and and just all the things that are happening because it's crazy. I mean it's. It is absolute craziness what what's going on in the world. And I know you've been sending me some emails. You're in the loop on the disclosure thing. And there's a, there's some big things happening behind the scenes that most of us don't have a clue about. And everybody thought that Obama would be the disclosure president. And if he's going to disclose, he's going to have to do it within the next month and a half where it will be over. Yeah. And who knows, you know, who knows? Um, well, Richard, everybody needs to go out there get a copy of Tor Codes Into Darkness. Get you the you know Christmas is coming up. If you know somebody who loves the Watchers, buy the set. You're not going to get it at a better price. It's it's way cheaper if you buy it in the set. Get the set. Give it to somebody you love. Get a copy of the Watchers DVD to go along with it. Buy the Blu-ray. You get two for the price of one. Um, just just help help. Pinlight Productions out because we want more watchers. We want more Torah codes. You guys do an amazing job. I love the way you shoot. I love the your B roll. I love the way you put it all together. It's different. It's edgy. It's not. It's not what I see on every other channel. And so I, I very much appreciate what you guys are doing. I want Thank to see you, you guys I really keep appreciate moving. that. Very and so you're, you're welcome back anytime. Um, for those of you out there listening, be sure to go to pinlight.com, check them out on YouTube, go get copies of all of their great stuff. Uh, Richard, God bless you. Thanks for coming on, sir. You too, man. Thank you very much. It was a, a real honor being on and sorry we went over. No, it's not. I'm, it's, it's not like we're on any schedule. We're just going to keep it manageable. So, um, thanks for coming on. It's a, it was an honor having you on here. And for all of you listening out there, God bless you. And we'll talk to you next week. Cast them off radio. Fringe Files is a production of Cast them off Ministries. Visit us at castemoffradio.com. This program is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Music by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.